You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Recode Daily. I'm Peter Kafka. Joe Biden has won the presidential election, but this was not a landslide year for Democrats. Republicans gained seats in the House, and they may retain their majority in the Senate. And that's after Silicon Valley poured in millions of dollars into campaigns across the country. Teddy Schleifer, senior reporter for Recode, has been covering Silicon Valley's political awakening over the last couple of years. Hi, Teddy. Hey. Uh, what was at stake for Silicon Valley in this election? You, you've covered it pretty relentlessly. They raised a lot of money. They spent a lot of money. What, what did that mean for the Valley? I think you phrased it well. This was Silicon Valley's most partisan political moment in decades. I think a lot of people here were genuinely upset with the Trump presidency, especially on issues like immigration and climate change, which are two super important issues to Silicon Valley leaders. So this wasn't, you know, just rich people trying to protect their pocketbook because their pocketbook is doing pretty well under the Trump era. But they saw Trump as a threat and mobilized in a way they never have before. And, and g- generally, right, I mean, sometimes depending on who you're talking, um, Silicon Valley is painted as a, as a bastion of liberalism. Other times it's painted as a bastion of libertarianism. Mm. I mean, for years, uh, my perception of Valley and, and technologists in general were they didn't really concern themselves much with the government. It was kind of sort of below them or beneath them. It wasn't something they paid attention to. They were creating their own world. They didn't pay attention to, to politics at all. That certainly changed. Um, Reid Hoffman, one of the most high-profile billionaires in Silicon Valley, uh, LinkedIn founder, um, was very active, uh, quite public about his intent on sort of turning back the Trump tide. He spent a lot of money over a long time. Was he successful? You know, in a close presidential election, one of the convenient things for all these Silicon Valley billionaires is that everybody can say that they were the tipping point. And there's going to be a lot of spin. There already is a lot of spin coming from all corners of the world of billionaires about how their investment in this congressional district made the difference. And without them, you know, there's no Joe Biden presidency. The honest answer is it's really hard to tell at this point. We're just a couple of days after Election Day. You know, I think once all the data comes out, once much more sophisticated analysis than than I can run is able to be done, we'll have a good picture. I mean, there certainly is some evidence that a lot of billionaires did not influence the election, at least in a pretty cost-effective way. I mean, like in 2016, the Biden campaign way outspent Trump, especially toward the end, if you include outside groups. And the race is going to come down to, you know, a couple ten thousands or hundreds of thousands of votes here. This was not a landslide, as he said at the outset. So, you know, Reid Hoffman, you know, has spent the last four years not just trying to build you know, out super PACs and, you know, relationships with the Biden campaign, but he was trying to build sort of a long-term democratic infrastructure to take out Trump. And if he was successful, it was sort of by, you know, a very, very narrow margin. Maybe you can argue that was cost-effective given how important getting rid of Trump was to him, but it wasn't easy. As we're recording this, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York uh, is gathering attention from her assertion that a lot of people just screwed up their campaign because they didn't spend enough time and money on digital. 
there's a lot of folks who just sort of take whatever she says at gospel. Do you have any sense of whether Democratic candidates were ignoring digital this year around? She's certainly entitled to her opinion, but I think there's a lot of people who would disagree with her. I mean, there's been obviously an effort over the last not just four years, but really, frankly, 10 to 12 years to move the Democratic Party away from sort of the traditional television heavy political advertising cycle. I mean, this over the last four years, in fact, inspired by a lot of Silicon Valley donors, you've seen groups like Acronym, um, which is a Democratic super PAC that basically exclusively focused on digital. Now, obviously, you know, AOC can uh, play ad maker and maybe she has specific disagreements about specific ads and like, you know, people can have at it in the lengthy postmortem that we'll all go through. But I don't think that's a slam dunk argument by her. Since we're in speculation mode, and to be clear, a lot of these questions can't get answered for quite some time until we see real um, election results. And we're not going to get some of those for days or weeks. Um, But let's speculate some more. Um, We don't know who's going to control the Senate right now. It's literally a toss up. It looks like there'll be special elections. So we won't know this for months. But we're probably looking at a Biden presidency, a deadlocked Senate, uh, a narrowly Democratic House. What does all that mean for tech regulation, tech policy. We've spent a long time talking about uh, movements to, to reform tech, rein in tech, break up big tech. And recently that all sort of assumed there was going to be sort of a democratic sweep. Since that's not the case, what do you think happens to tech regulation over the next couple of years? I think this is really going to be a test of whether or not the bipartisan quote unquote consensus on tech is stronger than sort of the institutional gridlock that seems coming our way. You know, theoretically, a lot of people agree about, you know, tech is too powerful. Theoretically, you know, they tweet the right things, they say the right things, you know, their positions are well known. But is it a priority for these people in a, you know, in a Republican Senate and a Democratic White House where, you know, they're only going to agree on a few things, they only have so much kind of political capital to spend on cooperation? Is this issue going to be more important than something like infrastructure or or sort of more traditional meat and potatoes issues. I'm not so sure. And I think, you know, ultimately, there's been this belief that there's this Democratic anti-tech movement and Republican anti-tech movement and that they could come together on this. But sort of the way that Washington is going to work over the next four years or is likely to work over the next four years, or at least next two years, you know, a similar sort of or is drawing comparisons to like the second Obama term, right? When like there was constant fights over budgets and sort of just the the keeping the lights on in government. And the idea that there's going to be this, you know, kind of come to Jesus moment for everybody where they're going to decide that tech is the issue that they want to unite around. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I think it's really going to test whether or not there's as much agreement as we think there is. And and the flip side of that is what about Silicon Valley's political activism that sort of woke up like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation? Do do, do they stay awake? Do they do they go back? If, If the consensus is we got Trump out of office, um, and probably we're not going to have our, our businesses highly regulated. Yeah. Can we just go back to where we were prior to 2016, just doing our own thing? That's a great question. I mean, this was, to be clear, primarily an anti-Trump movement. This was not, you know, that Silicon Valley had sort of discovered the, the wild world of politics. This was motivated by Trump. And I think there's a lot of fear, honestly, among progressives and Democratic operatives that these people are going to leave as soon as they came. I think one of the big questions is, you know, do all these kind of political advisors and political organizations that some of these billionaire donors have set up after 2016, do they stick around? I mean, sometimes, you know, they're not going to withdraw money to a nonprofit they gave to, right? It's not really how this stuff works. But for instance, Reid Hoffman made an interesting comment 
that caught some attention uh, on a Biden campaign call in the middle of the summer where he said that he would step out of board meetings to attend to politics, sort of saying that his political investments were more of a demand on his time and were worth more of his time than his startup investments in his day job as a venture capitalist. Is that still true in 2021 with a Trump out of office? I sort of think that's unlikely to be true, even though it'll be hard for these people to recede entirely from politics. Can we safely predict that you'll be covering this for us in the weeks to come, Teddy? Yes. I mean, this is a a big story and uh, I want to keep doing it. I look forward to reading it. You can read more of Teddy's stuff at recode.net. Thanks, Teddy. Sure. 